Hi, this is John. And this is Derek of Gotham TV Podcast. If you've just watched the pilot episode of Gotham and found our podcast, well, welcome on board. We've been covering Gotham at the UK pace so far, and we're about 10 episodes in. I hope you enjoy our podcast and the Gotham pilot. If you have any comments, thoughts, or feedback, you can get in contact with us at feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com on our website, www.gothamtvpodcast.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search Gotham TV Podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to us and leave a review on iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher, Player FM, or any other good podcast catcher. We hope you enjoyed listening to us, and we'll talk to you again soon. This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hi, and welcome to Gotham TV Podcast. This is the unofficial podcast of the show Gotham uh, and the connected DC universe. We've just removed the upcoming show Gotham for the first time. Uh, I'm Derek, one of your hosts. And I'm John, your other host. And we sure have. And it's so exciting to finally have Gotham on TV over here in Ireland and the UK on Channel 5. And... We really want to thank all you guys and gals and ladies and gentlemen out there for sticking with us because, what, we're about three episodes, four episodes behind. That's extreme patience, and we <laughs> we are really happy about that. Um, and also, yeah, we've gotten some feedback, and that is brilliant, absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. Um, but I can't really think that it's been spoiled in any way. I mean... It's been really expert twittering from um, everyone who's, who's following us. So that's really good, too. Yeah, now I will say I cleared out the Twitter account every morning after each uh, after each episode was coming up. I cleared out the Twitter account so I didn't see anything from, from the official channels or anything from the cast. So I've been pretty, pretty uh, non, non-spoiled. <laughs> that's uh, why so I've not seen anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've uh, been clearing okay. it out every day. <laughs> um, so... If you're just joining us, we've uh, we've been running our podcast uh, for the last uh, probably 17 or 18 episodes now at this stage, um, for the last number of months, so since March of this year, covering all the background, covering all the history uh, and all the connected stuff, all the uh, casting announcements and um, and all the information in comic books that are connected to the show. Yeah, so we, we looked at Gotham Central, so there's about five episodes there. If anyone wants to check them out, they can just download those particular ones or listen to them on our website yeah we've also covered the uh, christopher nolan films all, all three of those as a trilogy and, and did those back to back if you have a bit of time on your hands uh, go listen to them um, we covered certain sort of event pieces like the, the first big extended trailer that came out just after easter mm-hmm. um, and also san diego comic-con um, and then we also completely and utterly decided we would think this was our first episode in february where Gotham had been um, announced, and we just, I suppose, made stuff up. 
Um, no, <laughs> we, we had an educated guess about what what was going on. <laughs> we made nothing up. We had we have opinions. This is why we have a podcast. This is the point of it. Um, <laughs> so we want to welcome on board the the new listeners. We've had uh, quite a few in the last couple of weeks since we um, since we did our uh, the last episode of Zero Year. I think uh, the second last episode you would have heard. Since we did that, we've had quite a few people that have come on board for the first time, and we've got some great feedback from them. So uh, so thanks for all of you guys who've joined us, and thanks for everybody that's joining for our first pilot review which is this episode exactly and we also did an interview episode with victoria cartagena and andrew stewart jones which was amazing and again we want to thank them so much for their time on that that was really very generous of them we did an interview with um fan sites like gotham addicts um with sophia and candace which was really good and other gotham related podcasts like The Legends of Gotham and Before the Bat, which again was really excellent to sort of build that community and, yeah. and get involved yeah. in that one. And one more that we've done, which we mentioned last time, but uh, but talking to the Assembly of Geeks about uh, about Gotham and hopefully getting them a bit more excited about the show, a bit, you know, adding to their excitement, I suppose. Um, that was really good fun. So we've done tons of stuff, as all we're saying. We're going to keep the opening section of this is as short as we can uh, as we go into the, what you're here for the pilot review of uh, of Gotham but we have a little bit of news we want to go through first The first bit of the news is about ratings. It's something we're not actually going to cover very much on our show, um, but we just want to kind of size it up uh, where we are so far with ratings. Um, Channel 5 in the UK and most of UK channels will not release ratings on a regular basis. It's not something that's generally done over here. Uh, but we wanted to have a quick chat about the um, about the ratings for the pilot in the US. Um, they've been really high. Um, you know, eight, 8 million viewers on the premiere night on the 22nd yeah. of September for, for, the, for the episode we're going to talk about later on. And does that include Canada? No, it's just actually U.S. numbers. Um, okay. In there, so it's on it's on Fox in the U.S. So there'll be a lot of Canadian numbers, I'm sure, added to that as well. Um, but the other point that we really want, I think we talked about it with Gothamatics a couple of months ago. The the DVR numbers, so the numbers of co- numbers of people who have recorded the show and watch it after the fact. Uh, can, okay. Yeah, it added about fifty percent on top of the on top of the people that watched it on the first night. So if my maths is right. Uh, that's 12 million people that wa- that watched the first episode within the first three days of it being out there. That's huge numbers. That's really good numbers, yeah. yeah. And I mean, just it, it's that notion that people are watching TV differently now. Now that they've got... Um, it started with the box set DVDs where they didn't watch the episodes, bought the box set, and then flew through yeah. maybe an ep- uh, a, a season, sorry, two seasons or an entire series of a show and now that we're all recording it on um well recorder boxes whether mm-hmm. it's TiVo or Horizon um mm-hmm. it's that we're we're watching TV differently generally and um, so really yeah, the other, that's the interesting thing here. yeah absolutely the other point to make and we you know we've had some discussions about this in the past about about you know reporting on ratings particularly what comes out is you know something like the voice in the u.s is a huge show which was in the exact same time slot as gotham on the night itself the day after when people were reporting up they were saying that the voice beat gotham in the ratings and um, it actually turns out when you add these numbers in the three the, the plus three days people that weren't at home to watch it at the time and watched it a little bit afterwards the number of people that watched gotham is significantly higher than the number of people that watched 
The Voice, which is one of the most popular reality TV shows on the US. Yeah, moment, so, so go Gotham. Absolutely, go, go Gotham. Gotham. That's brilliant news. And then we also have some really great news that is to do with casting. And that is that Harvey Dent has now been cast for Gotham. It was always uh, postulated, it was rumoured, and now this is the fact. And the actor has been cast to play Harvey Dent. Whether he will become Two-Face or not is another thing entirely. Absolutely. But the person who has been cast to play Harvey Dent is Nicholas D'Agosto. Um, and we know him from Final Destination 5. Yeah. Where I... Um, <laughs> was behind a cushion for most of the time uh, <laughs> trying to watch this film, which is generally the case with horror movies and gory blood He is totally not lying. Movies. But I love them, <laughs> yeah. and this was actually a great return to form of the Final Destination um, franchise, actually. Yeah, yeah, it was. Love that film, really good. And it looks like he's going to be... Um, well, he was certainly one of the ill-fated kids in Final <laughs> Destination 5, as everyone was in, in the show. But he's basically set out to be a certainly a much younger uh, Harvey Dent um, for the screen, and that he's a young Harvey Dent working his way up the ranks of the legal system in Gotham. Mm. And hopefully then we'll see a lot of this inter- interplay between him and Jim Gordon, as they try to clean up this city. In a sense, a bit like um, The Dark Knight. Yeah. With regards to the White Knight of Harvey Dent in in that film. But also, it will be interesting to see how he's played, because we have known him from The Dark Knight and his transformation into Two-Face in that film. But we also certainly know him from... Gotham Central that we have discussed previously, where he has a relationship with Renny Montoya, who yeah. is within this universe, within this TV show, and we also know him from The Long Halloween, which is certainly your favourite graphic novel. Yeah, absolutely, and this is this is kind of my thing when I saw Nicholas D'Agosto uh, being cast in the part, and I've seen you know images of him or photographs of him, and um, he seems quite a young character, but you know, Long Halloween is about. The younger, some yeah. of the younger times in um, in the Batman history and in the in, in Gordon's history and particularly in Harvey Dent's history, um, I, I like the idea that they might be going down the path of you know he's a young lawyer in the city trying to work his way up to DA. He's not DA at the moment. Um, it would be quite interesting to see uh, yeah. that kind of path for him, you know. And will he get corrupted? I mean, this is one of the really interesting things about mm-hmm. it is that will. Will the show stick with the notion that he's as pure as pure and he's almost, to an extent, incorruptible, yeah. um, except for some huge intervention like you saw in The Dark Knight with the Joker? And that was part of his plan to take that incorruptible element and to corrupt it so that it undermines everything that Jim Gordon and the Batman had been doing. Now, obviously, we don't have Batman here, but what's his place in the political establishment that we can now say from the first episode has a corrupt element to it? And the suspicion of corruption runs through it. So how will that play out? Will he be incorruptible and this Uh moral sort of centre, which also Jim Gordon has? Or are we going to see him that just purely with his day-to-day 
dealings with crime, with the establishment, with cr other corrupt elements that he gets tainted or he gets corrupted. Yeah, I, I, I like the fact that, you know, actually Harvey plays a little bit in the greyer area than than has probably been seen. I think one of the attacks, and we talked about it on our Dark Knight review, one of the attacks that was taken with Harvey Dent was that actually he's not it's not that he's incorruptible it's not that he is the white knight he's seen as the white knight by the people of gotham because of the promotion of the press and the promotion of you know the legal system in in gotham and um, so it'd be quite interesting to see him grow into that character you know of course he's a young character there's going to be moments of choice for that character as we go along will he flip a coin to make that choice or not is is my kind of <laughs> that, that's my thing will he just flip a coin and make a choice and just happen down the right path or will this be part of his character, you know? Um, I'm, I'm really interested. I'm really interested to see what he does. No, I am. And I think, um, speaking of choices, I think it seems to be a great choice for Harvey Dent um, in Gotham yeah. for uh, Nicholas D'Augusto. Yeah, I presume. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. But, I mean, yeah. certainly huge congratulations for getting the, the part. That's and a, I presume the casting director... We can't wait to see... I, I presume the casting director didn't flip the coin for that particular role. No, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there was months and months of, training, of, of casting for that one. Or burn sort of one side of his face and sort of go. Uh, <laughs> Will he look good in five years when we burn one side of his face? Is that what they were, is that what they were going for? I don't think so. so. Uh, no, maybe not. Uh, but you know, congratulations! This is interesting casting news, and we can't wait to see um, it come to to. The, the screen now. Yeah, yeah, and in our other section of, of news, um, we have we also cover the DC Connected Universe news in our in our podcast. Uh, if anybody new who's joined us, uh, have a little bit of a little bit of DC Connected Universe news. As I said, we're keeping this short. Um, where the Teen Titans is joining the expanding list of DC properties that's been uh, been greenlit for a TV show, are uh, going to be coming to TNT in the US. Um, for essentially the show is going to be called Titans, not Teen Titans. So Teen Titans is probably well known for some comic book uh, fans and some cartoon fans as being just a, a, essentially just an animated uh, an animated show. Um, but it's going to be called Titans, and essentially the way they've described it is that the show will, would center on Dick Grayson, the former Robin. Uh, who emerges from Batman's shadow to become Nightwing, and he'll essentially lead up the Titans. Um, there's also going to be Starfire and Raven, but isn't it interesting Nightwing's going to be part of another TV show not connected to Gotham? It's quite interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, anything to do with Nightwing is really good. I really love this character. It should be really interesting. I mean, I always kind of would love to have him... In a world where there is Batman, because I've always loved the playoff between the two characters in the comic books, mm. uh, between Batman and between Nightwing, because there's a slight element of tension there because of, of how he becomes Nightwing and that idea that, you know, he's been trained by Batman. He used to be the former uh, Robin and so on. And that now he's kind of gone off and done his own thing. And whilst Batman has respect for that, I, I always feel there's a slight tension, but maybe that's just yeah. for myself. But it also just reminds me as well of that Nightwing sort of fan. Uh, the fan film. The yeah. fan film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. By I think it was Danny Shepard and Jeremy Lee. And I, I think they were on... Um, up at Noon. They were on Up at promotion. Noon yeah, uh, yeah. with regards to the video cast Up at Noon. I was so excited by that, that there were people who were massive fans of Nightwing who were looking to make their own series, actually. Yeah. That's a great concept. Yeah, and they'd made um, an episode, hadn't yeah. they? Yeah. 
So, to me, Teen Titans seems really interesting. I mean, I, I've i never particularly gotten involved with the Teen Titans in terms of buying... But they've never chased you down. They've never chased me down. Good. I've never done anything that illegal where they would um, need to find, find me and, and, and control... <sighs> control me or take me out but the nightwing element of it i'm really excited for actually. absolutely absolutely no it's going to be an interesting one and, and really a really interesting idea for doing you know essentially the young justice league uh on television you know it's a it's a yeah, it's, exactly. it's very interesting to see costumed heroes in tv because we actually don't have any despite all the comic book shows we have we just have one in arrow one in Flash. That's basically it at the moment, you know. And then the rest of the costume people are villains. Um, it's quite interesting to have a superhero team. It's it's, it's quite a nice, uh, quite a nice choice, and quite complementary to the entire DC universe. Exactly. But I think with um with that we move on to our review and discussion of um the pilot episode, which I have to say, it felt like an eternity. For it arriving, <laughs> yeah. Um, even though what it's essentially three weeks difference, but four episodes because it it's on the same day it, uh, on Channel Five as it is on Fox in the US and yep. Canada. But it felt like an eternity. Absolutely, um, it Absolutely. really, really did. Because, but that's okay. We've got like five years of these to do, so it'll be okay. Yay! Well, I think so. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, definitely. <laughs> Judging by this first episode, I hope so. Spoilers. Um, spoilers. <laughs> but um, Speaking of which, there will be spoilers for our review of this show. Obviously, we'll talk about every single piece and every single element we ha- we, ha- we can. Um, we have some feedback, which will be coming after our uh, review of the episode. Um, and there will be more spoilers in there. So if you haven't watched the episode, go out watch it. It's on 5 On Demand. If you're in the UK, it's on Fox On Demand. If you're in the US, if you haven't caught up just, just yet. And thanks for joining us for the review. On to the fir- the pilot review. Awesome. Yes. So tonight's episode, episode one, uh, entitled Pilot, sees Jim Gordon, played by Ben McKenzie, return to Gotham after his stint in the army. Uh, And he returns to the homicide unit of the Gotham City Police Department. Immediately, he's assigned uh, the case of Thomas and Martha Wayne's murder. And with this comes the added aspect of an orphan child in the shape and form of a young Bruce Wayne, traumatised by the events of the killing. He's assigned this case um, with his new partner, Harvey Buck, and it's a case, ultimately, that nobody is willing to have because of the reputation of Thomas and Martha Wayne. All this is set against the backdrop of a city of Gotham teetering on the brink of chaos as the competing factions of both the criminal underworld that includes Carmine Falcone, Fish Mooney, and a first-level thug in the form of Oswald Cobblepot V for control of the criminal fraternities. This is all in conjunction with a corrupt political establishment. This results in a failed coup by Cobblepot against his former boss, Fish Mooney, that leads to his assumed death at the hands of Jim Gordon as he becomes embroiled into the seedier side of the Gotham City Police Department. So, I mean, with that, what are the immediate thoughts for, for the pilot? Well, surprisingly, uh, after this many months waiting to uh, waiting to see the show, there's always that nervousness about uh, about seeing it and will it hold, will it 
stand up to what you're looking forward to. Uh, for me, I yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Um, overall, I loved the, uh, the interplay between the characters. I thought there was some really good, uh, twists and turns throughout the episode. Um, lots of, uh, lots of information about each of the characters and lots of stuff that we'll be talking through, uh, as we go through our podcast, obviously. Um, but yeah, my initial thoughts is, yeah, loved it. Uh, yeah. I mean, same for me. I, I thought this was really quite a strong, um, first episode. And for a pilot, it, it deals with a lot of information, uh, brings in a lot of characters. And I thought it did that really quite well. I also loved the, tone and the feel and the look of the city i thought it looked uh, amazing i thought sort of the whole gothic features that sort of were um, placed in the backdrop of essentially new york city Mm -hmm. was really really good i loved some of the little points of detail such as there was the wayne monorail that you could see and traveling around the city from Mm -hmm. some of the real sort of panned back shots of, of of that city and it just seemed a really good tone i loved the sort of the cinematography the sort of darkened tones that were were brought in i thought it was really Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Danny Cannon's done a brilliant job, really, hasn't he, to uh, to do this for the for the city and to do to give it that look to begin with, uh, along with obviously all the all the members of the uh, of the crew that are involved in making the city look like it does. The precinct set is uh, is a fantastic set, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of time with the GCPD and with the major crimes unit. We're probably going to see a lot of uh, a lot of that set. But I think it's really good. Uh, it did have one distraction for me, which was the police <laughs> lights outside the window, outside every single window in the in the precinct. I know they're trying to give the feeling that Im- immediately when you get there, there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of things going on. But I think the police lights is a bit much out of every single window. I don't know how that happens, which would be on a, a block of police cars just sitting outside with the lights turned on. <laughs> but yeah, that was I mean, the only I, thing for me. I only really um, noticed it when you kind of mentioned it, yeah. but I, I get the point, definitely. Yeah, and, the um, set, and the set for Fish Minnie's Bar as well, that's a really good set. I like yeah, that. those two sets are, are really good, and you can see the time... The, the effort, um, put into producing those sets is really paying off in their look, uh, on, on the screen. They look brilliant and yeah. just, they're great for permanent sets. Really, really good. Um, but essentially then we are treated, <laughs> I don't know whether treated's the right word, but we're, we're, we start off with the big thing, which is the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Yeah. The thing that, Bruno Heller has said is the premise of the show of the what if uh, Jim Gordon is assigned to the, the this murder and this is what sets off the whole thing which is viewed by a young Selena Kyle as well. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Loved loved the idea that she's you know running around the city and giving you a feel of you know the movement that she has and the movement that you can have between the whole areas around so uh from Chinatown down to the actual alleyway where the where the Wayne murder happens and uh, I love that feel I love I love that whole piece of her stealing the wallet and then the pint of milk and then pouring it out for the cat and that's really cute um nice little clip the fact that she has no lines you know exactly who the character is even as a first time even as a first time viewer if you know the comic books at all you know exactly who cat girl is essentially and <laughs> um, yeah well that was really good one thing I do love about the murder scene itself is that it takes a lot of pieces from uh, from previous versions of the of this particular murder. We've seen it many times over the seventy five years. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So essentially, some of the lines that are in there, particularly, are, are, are stand out to me. Things that that were in the Batman eighty nine film and repeated again in Nolan's films. The uh, the give me your money and necklace, which is what the robber says. Yeah. 
where Bruce's father says, we're cooperating here, calm down to him. That's, again, um, from previous versions. Uh, the necklace being pulled off with the pearls dropping to the ground. Is, Absolutely. You know, that's an iconic piece. And then finally, the iconic shot of Bruce kneeling on the kneeling on the ground, screaming, and his parents dead in the shape of a bat symbol is really amazing to see in live action, which we haven't seen before. In Absolutely. One of the slight differences here, though, is that his face is covered. He's got a balaclava on, um, the murderer, yeah. that is. Yeah. Uh, so we don't know who it is, unlike, say, in the 1989 Batman film where you see the person's face yeah. as he shoots Thomas and Martha Wayne. Yeah. It's... You know it's Jack Lippman Nicholson from the start. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in this case, it is a going to be a proper investigation into it because mm-hmm. you do not know who is the murderer in this case. I think one of the things for me from this death of Thomas and Martha Wayne was, for me, it was really great um, and important to see blood. I think one of the... Important is definitely the better <laughs> yeah. word there. Yeah. Important is, yeah, the better word. Yeah, important is definitely the better word. Yeah. Um, I, the, what I mean by this is that certainly, for example, in uh, Batman Begins, it was a very bloodless affair. And, yeah. of course, a gunshot is never a bloodless affair. <laughs> and so that idea of seeing the blood um, come out of the chest of Thomas and Martha as they're shot, the fact that their shirts and blouses are starting to stain with blood yeah. and... Uh, Bruce, the young Bruce Wayne gets it on his hands. It adds to then what I think is a really intense and great bit of acting by, uh, David Mazous, um, because the intensity and the pain and the panic that comes from having blood on his hands, his own parents' blood on his hands is, is really, really good, I think. I think it, it's, it, it really jumps from the screen as being a very, traumatic and deeply sort of emotional point uh, in this uh, kid's life which ultimately sets him on a path that we we know um will turn him into the cape crusader yeah. into the into batman so i thought that was some really excellent bit of acting and I, I loved that scene um, and i thought he did it really really well oh absolutely you know, i think we spoke about it before when we'd seen it on the trailer um it's still really impact impactful and i've probably seen that scene 50 60 times at this stage over the course of the last seven or eight months of podcasting i've seen that scream over and over again but when it's in the scene itself it's got background music leading up to it which is quite intense the background music drops out and it's just David Masuse's scream, which is so impactful still yeah. uh, after all this time. I think it's, he does a fantastic job. Speaking of of David Masuse's acting, um, this scene really stands out to me, where he t- where he talks to Jim Gordon about who the killer is. A man came out of the shadows. He he, he was tall, with the black mask. And he had a hat and gloves and shiny shoes. He took my dad's wallet. And my mom's necklace. He shot them. For no reason. I should have done something. I was too scared. There was nothing you could have done to stop what happened. But there is something you can do now. You can be strong. I just think this is a great and really moving scene between the two of them. I love, you know, that the this is setting up essentially everything that we know from now on for Bruce Wayne and the scene itself is the setup for it the fact that he simply says I should have done something but I was too scared 
Um, and Jim tries to comfort him with, it's not your fault. It's not something you could have done anything about. But we know, we all know that Bruce is going to hold this. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's so, life. absolutely. It's so important for the young Bruce Wayne's future, essentially. I think as well, it's, for me, that whole speech being, uh, between the two of them, the whole, uh, talk and chat between the two of them is much better in this scene with the context of everything that goes on. It, it really stands out as uh, an important piece of um, dialogue within the TV, and as you say, because of its importance for Bruce Wayne uh, much later on. I think as well, we get to find out that shiny shoes are incredibly, incredibly important <laughs> for, knows? for this investigation. Um, my mom always told me to polish my shoes when I was a kid, but I never realized it would become this important to yeah. have to polish shoes. Like, and this people will, would notice it that well. This know? will be a very important part of the, of the investigation Absolutely. and to come. But Jim has been sent down here from the precinct and that's where we get to see for the first time him in action. We get to see the precinct for the first time, which, as we said before, looks amazing. And we get to meet his partner, his other half, the um, slightly dubious um, detective Harvey Bullock. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Harvey Bullock for a minute. I must say, he's uh, Donald Logue's done a great job uh, in this episode, hasn't he? Um, really embodies the character. Uh, we'll talk about We'll talk about more as we go, uh, but I really enjoyed his performance. Though. Yeah, and we see essentially Jim Gordon in action, and immediately it sets him slightly apart from the rest of the GCPD because <laughs> one of the one of the criminals that's been brought into custody takes a young police lady, holds a hostage, takes a gun, fires it into the ceiling of the precinct. And instead of just shooting him, like we find out that's what he should have done, that's the number one rule. If they take a copper's or a police officer's firearm, you shoot them and ask questions later. Instead, he negotiates by um, giving a jar of pills to this very large guy, which um, potentially has connotations for who he may be, um, asking for pills. Um, he passes him some paracetamol, and in doing so, he knocks him out, takes his gun off him. But this is important scene for the fact that it does set Jim Gordon slightly apart from other members of um, the homicide unit, in particular his own partner, Harvey Bullock, yeah. that he does and will do things slightly differently Absolutely. than what is expected. Absolutely. I love when he takes the takes the gun off and then goes, sorry guys, I might have been a bit harsh there, and the rest of the GCPD get on the floor and kick <laughs> the hell out of the uh, out of the guy who's uh, out of the criminal. So there's speculation that that's Bane, isn't it? Um, that, that a lot of people were saying that this could be Bane because of his size and because Bane takes drugs or takes venom, essentially, in the comic books, that this could be someone like Bane, that he's taking some kind of medication, um, like, like the Bane character. I don't, I don't think it feels like that. I think it feels more like a reference to, um, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, um, in the scene where the criminal's in the, in the prison waiting for the Joker, um, 
where he's kind of screaming out that he's an insane guy um, who's got the phone inside him, inside his body, yeah. isn't it? Uh, I think it feels like that more so than than it being a Bane reference, but that's uh, that's just my my thoughts. On yeah, it. no, I, I think so too. But it, still, you've got the pills and and the medication that he's asking for, which. Bane was on before he had the venom injected into him. Um, so it could be, but it would be strange if that were to happen. But of course, maybe um, episodes down the line or seasons down the line, it could be that there is a, an introduction of such a, a character, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, even possibly in Arkham Asylum or something. So Potentially, yeah. Um, it could be, but... We're not really, um, we're not going to put a bet on it, I think, yeah, uh, at exactly. this stage. Exactly. Now, we did say, you know, that, that Bruno Heller had said that this, uh, that Jim Gordon investigating the case of the death of, uh, of Bruce Wayne's parents, uh, was the kickoff of the show. There's actually quite a few little coincidences as to why he becomes the lead investigator for it. Essentially, um, Bullock shouts out that it's the end of their shift when they get the call uh, in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the desk sergeant says, nope, go down and you're doing it anyway. Uh, Bullock gets down and with Jim to the location, sees who it is and says, I don't want any involvement in this. Um, give it to major crimes. They'll be really happy to take this case off our hands. So I don't want to get, I don't want to have this big a case. Uh, if any of those points hadn't happened, essentially, if they hadn't been uh, hadn't been given the case, then Jim wouldn't have been the person investigating. It would have been Montoya and Allen who would have been the investigating officers. Absolutely. Completely changing the show, essentially. So I like those little coincidences that led up to it, and I like there were, were a couple of outs, so it wouldn't be Jim Gordon. I like the, like the way that was set up. Oh, that was really good. Absolutely. Yeah. So down at the crime scene, we then also get to see... Alfred introduced yep. Sean Pertwee. Um, and again, it's these little bits of detail that I really, really enjoyed from this episode. Um, you know, he's very bolt upright, very kind of military, um, esque. And that I think is really good. And I think leading the young Bruce Wayne away back to the car to take him back to Wayne Manor. He just sort of turns to him and says, head up, and, you mm-hmm. know, shoulders back, head up, chest out, you know, don't give away anything that you might be absolutely shredded internally because you've just witnessed your parents, uh, murder. It's, it's very kind of keep everything in check. Yeah. Head, head up, you know, don't give anything away to anyone who might be yes. watching press or whatever. Yes, so I know his uh, I know his his accent is slightly different than we've seen from Alfred before, but he's definitely got the stiff upper lip Brit about him, doesn't he? Certainly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love his uh, I love his conversation with his quick conversation with Jim at this point where he goes um <laughs> He goes, do you think you're going to solve the murder? Because uh, he makes the promise to Bruce that he's going to solve the murder of, of the Waynes. Uh, he says the same thing to Alfred. And Alfred goes, yeah, new boy, are you? Good luck, mate. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's really interesting it's that, that Alfred knows about the city far better than, than Jim Gordon does. Um, but yeah, really, really good scene. Yeah. yeah. So this essentially leads us into the investigation by Jim and Harvey of uh, of who's the killer, essentially. Um, you know, This is now going to form the main portion of the show and the main portion of the season really you think um, yeah yeah and um, so i mean we kind of see here then that jim and harvey do keep the case there's a lovely scene where we get introduced obviously to our two favorites uh Renan montoya and crispus allen and 
it's, it's in a uh, in a diner. And I, the other thing I love about this scene is Harvey Bullock says he's got his coffee, <laughs> he's got his flask of whiskey, I think, and he's got his um, Pepto-Bismol yeah. as well. Yeah. And he's taking a bit of Pepto-Bismol, a bit of coffee, and then a bit of whiskey yeah. all down the same tube. <laughs> and it's kind of... It's brilliant. I love, again, it's that little added bit of detail of the character of him sort of liking his drink. You know, does he constantly have a hangover? Um, <laughs> or is he just constantly and drunk? Yeah. It's wrecking his stomach and there goes the peptol dismal just yep. to, to relieve those symptoms. But they're sat there and then Montoya and Alan walk through the door. Yeah, just one little comment about that. Um, I know Jim and uh, Harvey are, par- are are new partners. They're only only developing their relationship. But did you notice that there's no reaction at all from from Jim Corden to this? So obviously, even though they're very new partners, this looks like a daily occurrence. This is what this is essentially breakfast for Harvey Bullock: is whiskey, Pepto-Bismol, and, and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really good. But yeah, our introduction to Montoya and Alan, which essentially, you know. They've called themselves the good guys of, of Gotham, essentially, the real good guys of, of Gotham. Um, they say that they just want the case because they, you know, they just need the press action, essentially. That's, uh, that's what Alan says. I just need the press action for this. This is going to be something that we'll solve simply, whereas Bullock, you'll never solve this case. Yeah. Um, in response, essentially, it's, it's, uh, a line directly out of Gotham Central, which we covered in previous episodes, which is where, Harvey calls them self-righteous do good and scale huggers, which is scale is the, is the term they use in the GCPD in Gotham Central as a, as a term for the bad guys, especially yeah. the city. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool. But that's a great little scene. Again, the introduction of the different factions within the GCPD, even you've mm. got the Jim and Harvey as the homicide unit. You have Montoya and Allen within the major crimes unit, the MCU. All there again, kind of competing for space within this organization. And to an extent, there's a bit of hierarchy there or assumed hierarchy that the major crimes is a better, um, section or a more honest and upfront, less corrupt, maybe, and mm-hmm. um, part of the organization than the homicide unit compared to a desk officer or a police or a police officer on the beat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a nice change from the comics. Again, in, in the comics, the major crimes unit was set up by Jim Gordon to set them apart from the GCPD. He was the leader of the team and he hand chose all the members of the team to represent uh, the best of the best in the GCPD so that he knew that they wouldn't be corrupt uh, cops, essentially. That was the, that was what he was setting it up for that purpose. So I know it's, it's a little twist from the comics absolutely. that he's not in there and that there's some sus- suspicion cast on Jim Gordon by these members of the of the major crimes unit. I think that's really interesting. Um, and it's almost a suspicion by association. Yeah. It, it's just the fact that he is partnered with Harvey Bullock. We know that Alan used to be partnered with Harvey Bullock. So mm-hmm. Alan knows um, Harvey Bullock sort of inside out Absolutely. in that sense. <laughs> he um, knows he's crushed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unlike all of us, we don't know. But, yeah. um, and... There's almost a bit guilty by association um, going on here um, as well, I think, yeah. which is really just a good sort of further layer and texture to sort of all the machinations, all the things going on in uh, in the show. Absolutely. I love that. 
speaking of the hierarchical nature of uh, the Gotham City Police Department, we get to meet another member of the team, uh, which is essentially from the Forensic Division, which is uh, Corey Michael Smith in his lead role as Edward Nigma for a nice uh, two-second uh, cameo in the first episode. Um, yeah. What I mean by hierarchical, he is treated like a janitor by yeah. everybody. He's essentially, this is the stuff that you know about, they say to him. You just give us the answers. That's all we want from you. Come into us and tell us what uh, what's been revealed by the by the stuff that we found at the crime scene, essentially. And Edward Nigma tries to have a bit of fun with it. He tries to play with them. Tries to ask questions and pose some riddles, which which uh, gets a really bad reaction from Harvey. He just treats him like dirt. He's just he essentially just goes, just give us answers. Mm-hmm. Don't want to be involved in games today. Just tell me what you know. But there's a really good counterpoint then where. He comes out with a riddle, and Jim answers him. Mm-hmm. And that look, that that flash of a look that Edward Nigma gives to Jim, it does sort of his eyes kind of narrow slightly, and he stares at Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock as they move away. And it's almost as though, oh, this guy's clever; he can answer my riddles. It's almost maybe that part of the reason why he's treated badly, or they don't answer his riddles is because either they can't or they feel threatened maybe by his sort of intellect he's from yeah. the forensics division so smartest guy in the room maybe. exactly yeah. so he this is like almost new territory for him in in the workplace and i love that kind of you got that just from that look yeah yeah it's a nice, really good a nice little touch from Corey michael smith there's definitely a little uh a little, um, he's very impressed, we'll say, with Richard yes. Gordon. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder how that's going to play out over the over time. Um, one, of, it's one of the things that I kind of feel it was fun. I'll have to see a couple more episodes with Edward Nigma in them. Um, I really Certainly. liked, uh, yeah, I really liked a couple of things, as, exactly as you mentioned. Um, but it could be just that little touch over the top. Um, if this is every single time we see him, he tries to do he tries to do a riddle and he does a little dance and he's essentially trying to play a game every time that we see him. It could be quite difficult to take. It could be a bit too over the top for the show, the way they're going with it, but we'll, we'll see over time. Yeah, and we, we need to just see how this plays out and, yeah. and how the characters develop because, I mean, that's very much an upfront thing. And Absolutely. To me, that would come with it being the pilot episode for, for the show. It's a means of selling it, but... um. You know, these characters will mature and and develop and, and expand and become part of you know a much more uh, reoccurring sort of nature uh, within the show, and that hopefully means they don't necessarily have to do that all the time. But at the same time, riddles are a big part of what Edward Nigma needs to go into. So, so. I'm sure there will be more of them to come, mm-hmm. but it's it's just how they're. Treated. I mean, he could be, he could simply just be doing the crossword puzzle or something like that. Yeah. That type of thing. Uh, not just simply, um, doing a, a riddle. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of interesting characters, we're now on to, uh, onto our, our second big pairing in the show, essentially. Uh, we've got Jim and Gordon. And we've got <laughs> Jim and Gordon. Jim and Gordon. <laughs> we've got and Jim and Harvey. Harvey and Bullock. <laughs> we've got Jim and Harvey on one side of the coin and on the opposite side of the coin. Now we're going to get to see. Fish Mooney's team, essentially. Maybe this pairing's fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> fish and penguin. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we got penguin and chips. Penguin and chips. Yeah. Um, so we got Fish and Oswald Cobblepot um, out in the street with uh, Butch Gilzean, who's uh, Fish's right hand man. Um, 
laying into someone with that famous baseball bat of uh, of hers. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So there's a. I feel very sorry for this poor character with his uh, with his lisp and um and yeah, essentially it looks like he's tried to steal some money from fish, and she is not a happy bunny. Um. She certainly isn't, and I liked her. To yeah. be honest, I thought she came across really well. I thought the flash of colour, um, like the red that she had um, in her hair, that streak of red, the in the, her wig, you mean? <laughs> well, yeah, I would, you know, it, it, in her hair, the streak yeah. of red, the red in her bar, all that kind of. That was that colour that lifted um, the tone slightly, actually, yeah. from the, the much greyer tone um, for all the other areas, all you yeah. know, the, the paler, darker tones that seem to be much more a part of the rest of uh, the city. Yeah, it's, defi- it's definitely got that 70s sepia kind of tone. Um, it feels like something that could have come out of the streets of San Francisco or Starsky and Hutch, maybe that kind of type of show. Whereas because she's... She owns a club, you know, you've got kind of cabaret, you've got other performances, all this kind of stuff. It seems much brighter, much um, more colourful. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's a tonal thing that they did there. But yeah. I, I liked that and I thought, um, I did actually think Fish Mooney had some of the really good lines in the show as well. Definitely. Um, you know, a cool glass of milk, I really liked that, that phrase. You know, um, the other one... You have a little bit of danger in your eyes. I want to see what you're going to do with that. Mm-hmm. Really, I think really good lines. Really, just encapsulate Jim uh, and what she's seeing him as. Mm-hmm. And given that her character is supposed to have almost that superpower, I mean, that's not the right word to use, of being able to read people very quickly. Yeah, she's that's supposed to be her. Um, thing that she can do is she yeah. can look at someone and read them very quickly and kind of get a sense of who they are what they are and maybe what they're going to do so that i liked yeah that's essentially how she's gotten to the place that she is and how powerful she is in the city essentially is by reading people over time the other thing that uh, about the about the color in in fisher's club essentially red is the color of danger and um, this is a warning to you if you're watching the show for the first time. This is your bad character. This is the one you gotta watch. Uh, you gotta watch, watch out for this girl. Um, which I think is a really good, a really good touch. Um, you know, but we get to see while she's talking to Bruce and Harvey, we have to find out that she has a, pre- a previous relationship with Harvey. We don't know what that relationship is. It could be that he's just, you know, the drunk cop that's sitting at a bar every single night. Yeah, he's a good customer. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but it's it's it kind of makes mention that he kinda, he lets her off a lot of uh, on a lot of crimes that she that she may be involved in because of the type of characters that work for. Her, um, is the way that that's the way that it's explained by Harvey. It may previously have been romantic. You never know um, that kind of thing. And then we get to see again Jim Gordon's stood there whilst Harvey Bullock and Fish Mooney are kind of sort of almost. Canoodling, canoodling, <laughs> yeah, playing, being playful with one another, whilst you hear the screams of the guy being beaten up outside in the alleyway, and Harvey Bullock almost answers for Fish Mooney when Jim says, "What's going on out there?" and he says, "Well, sure, we can have take a look if you don't mind, um, if that's okay by you, uh, Fish. Yep. You know, take a look out. I'm sure there, there's no one who will want to press charges out there. It's." It's Harvey Bullock almost assuming that role of what Fish Mooney should be doing. And Absolutely. that's very telling, I think. It's yeah. very much 
there are many different layers to Harvey Bullock, and one of them is that he is very loyal, and I think that plays out later on in the episode, actually, to Jim's favour, but in this case, he's, there's a loyalty there that he's got to a certain degree with Fish Mooney at this stage of the episode, and he's saying, go on, Jim, you go and take a look, and um, I'm sure there'll be no one out there who wants yeah. to press charges, I'm sure everything's fine, it's just business or something like that, and I, I find that quite interesting. Yeah, definitely, it feels like a line that could have been said by Butch Gilsey if he was standing right beside her at exactly. that time, that, you know, Harvey's taken the taking the position of being the right-hand man for, for Fish while Butch is standing outside. Nice little scene, though, with Oswald outside where he's asked to take a swing at the uh, at the criminal who's on the ground. He's asked to take a swing with the baseball bat, and he kind of gets all proud of himself and tries to make it with the group, but he is being treated like a, like a, a kid uh, in that place. These guys do not think of him as being on the same level as them at all. They're kind of having a bit of a go at him. Um, Absolutely. Just to kind of encourage him, but... To definitely, there's another hierarchical element there to their group, and he is on the total bottom of that group. Definitely, that that the layers of power are very much there, and at this moment in time, Oswald Gobblebot does not have the power within that group. He is almost a a, a first tier thug, and actually, you kind of get that a bit it's later on in lower than that, isn't even it? lower because. <laughs> yeah. Later on, you, he's actually rubbing um, Fish Mooney's feet. She yeah. asks him to sort of massage uh, her feet, and that's kind of she wouldn't ask Butch Gilsian to do that, um, or the other two guys stood there, and that's really um, quite telling. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But whilst Jim is out in the alleyway investigating this, we get introduced to Butch Gilsian, who. Essentially, there's nothing bad going on here. It's just all friends having a bit of fun. But in this moment, there is no idea of what's being discussed, potentially, or talked about within the club between Harvey Bullock and Fish Mooney, um, which later on in the episode, it would appear that there there has been some discussions about the case and about the murder of uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, essentially the, the, there's a break in the case, um, apparently, that comes out of nowhere. Harvey calls Jim, who's at home with his girlfriend or fiance, we think, uh, Barbara Keane. Yeah. Um, played by Erin Richards. Played by Erin Richards, the lovely Welsh actress. actress. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really nice scene, actually, between the two of them, where she's essentially saying that you seem like you're a bit out of your depth here. If you're out of your depth, let me know. Um but if you are, you know how to swim, don't you? Which I think is really a really nice uh, response to the "Are you out of your depth?" I've heard that phrase many, many times, yeah. but I've, I've never heard the um, "You know how to swim, don't you?" So swim, which is the the line from her. Anyway, Harvey calls Jim up to tell him, um, "Meet me at Fourth and Grundy in an hour uh, to talk about this case, the break in the case that he's had." Um, which is Fourth and Grundy, so that's a little reference to Solomon so, Grundy from absolutely. the from the comic books. Uh, Born quite, on a Monday. Uh huh. That's it. Um, can't remember the rest of the uh, no, I the, can't. The rest of the rhyme off the top of my head, but uh, I'm sure one of our listeners is shouting at the shouting <laughs> at the radio now, going, "I know what it is." Um, but that was a nice little touch. Um, but essentially, yeah, Harvey calls him while he's sitting in a pub, uh, drinking away once again. I have to say, Don Logue plays drunk like no man I've seen. For many, many years, <laughs> it does a great job of, uh, of you know, 
um, of being a drunkard and then meeting Jim and a couple of hours later sitting on a stoop uh, looking really disheveled and his first line to, uh, to Jim when he says, you know, you look a bit look a bit pale, look a bit off. He just goes, a couple of drinks, I'll be fine, which is a real, yeah. to me, sorry, but a bit of an Irish phrase. It's a very much a, this is something that an Irishman would say all the time if he's had a few drinks. It's either I can have a couple more drinks and I will be fine, or I should have a couple more. I should, should have had a couple yeah, less, or I've just had a couple of drinks. I could be okay. It can mean both things, essentially, So, um, which I thought was quite fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really great little sequence of him sort of in Fish Mooney's club, drinking away, and then ending up feeling slightly worse for work, um, to then try and crack and this case and take advantage of this new information that's come to light. And this is where they essentially come into um, the flat of Mario Pepper, mm-hmm. and we get introduced to the young Ivy Pepper. Yeah, it's Claire Foley, the Irish actress Claire Foley plays uh, plays Ivy, Ivy Pepper, um, young actress who was in uh, in the horror film before, was she? Yeah, so she was in uh, in The Haunting, I think it was. I'll have to check that one up. Um, but I like that. It's a nice little scene just to just to say hi to Ivy Pepper, um, and I like I like her little. You don't want to speak to my dad because he's, yeah. he's a bad man. She looks scared in that. Um, in those few moments that we see her, sort of those kind of panicky eyes that kind of say, help me, yeah. um, is really evident there. Um, and this is where, again, the break in the case is that the pearl necklace um, stolen from Martha Wayne um, before she was killed is found in a bag of drugs uh, in his apartment underneath uh, his bed. Mm-hmm. He makes a run for it and is chased by Jim Gordon. Yeah, there's a cool bit in that chase, isn't there, where they where they have the first person uh, camera sitting, pointing directly at his face a couple of times. It's a really yeah. interesting and dynamic scene that you wouldn't get in any other cop show. It's it's a nice little piece to see. Yeah, it was it was, it was kind of came as a, a surprise um, because the, the scene was playing out as it as it did, and then all of a sudden you got the the the, the cam. The Jim, looking, the Gordon cam. Yeah, the Gordon cam looking <laughs> at his face. Um, as he as he's running, it kind of it added something extra. I thought I thought it was all right actually. I know yeah. it might not be to everyone's um, sort of taste, I suppose, to mm-hmm. for that because it kind of it was very different to the rest of the shooting. I think or, or, of this episode, yeah. but it kind of ended up adding to the dynamism of that chase um, of Mario Pepper as he's trying to escape, yeah. and it ends up with Mario Pepper being shot. Yeah. By Harvey Bullock, because um, he's wielding this knife and practically about to take Jim Gordon down. Yeah. And Harvey Bullock comes to the rescue and shoots him stone dead. Yeah, I like that essentially Harvey's a man of his word. Uh, if someone draws a gun in a cop, then you shoot him. That's what he said. That's, he set the rule up at the beginning of the episode and now he's just done it. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a bad end for, uh, for Mario Pepper and poor little Ivy Pepper. Uh, now lost her dad. Um, because of because of Harvey Bullock, so exactly. But and I think again, the way Ivy Pepper was introduced, I thought that was really nice. I think all the way through this, I think you know, this element of oh, there's too many villains and so on. I thought they were kind of introduced quite nicely. In this case, you had Ivy Pepper being introduced by association that her dad is a 
suspect yeah. in this case, and he's a again he's a low level thug and, and runner for um, the the crime in um, the criminal uh, underworld within the city. With the Riddler before again as the forensics looking at the the bullet used um, taken from uh, the crime scene. Yeah. Again, it, it it all links quite nicely into the whole death of Thomas and Martha Wayne, which is is really good. One thing I wanted to point out was when they actually do find the pearl necklace in the bag of drugs in Mario Pepper's house, it's one strand pearl necklace. Um, yet Harvey had actually described it earlier on in the mm-hmm. show as an antique four-strand pearl necklace with gold settings and one strand broken. Um, it's a very specific description for the actual pearl necklace not to match the, the, the not to match that description. Um, I, I assumed the prop department had heard that description. So this should be an indication to us as an audience that Mario's being set up because it's only within a couple of minutes. Um, we should be, we should have been paying attention to the fact that this isn't exactly what Harvey had described that's been found in Mario's house. Absolutely. And that's one of the big things here then is that Mario Pepper is essentially being framed and we get this. And um, well, we could have got it from if we had been as uh, keen-eyed as as yourself, Detective uh, O'Neill, um, <laughs> from from those sort of key little elements that were giving us clues along the way. But we certainly hear it from then Oswald Cobblepot, and this is where he's making his play. Montoya and Allen, they're in the car. He just kind of slides into the back seat and essentially says that Mario Pepper was framed by the police department, Jim Gordon, Harvey Bullock, with Fish Mooney. And he saw the planting the evidence there. And this is a key moment for Oswald Cobblepot because this is his play to frame his boss to potentially come in and take over that particular part of, of that criminal um, business. Yeah, I love the arrogance of this. As we mentioned earlier on, you know, he was given a baseball bat by essentially his superiors in the criminal uh, group that fall underneath Fish Mooney. Yet he thinks just by taking out Fish, he's going to be able to take over. Can you imagine Butch Gilzean would would fall in behind Oswald Cobblepot? You know, yeah, can you imagine exactly. it But I love the arrogance of it. I love this particular scene. It's really good. Robin Lord Taylor is fantastic in this role. He's a real standout in the yeah. show. Um, the whole delivery of the line, you know, and, and Montoya asks, you know, why are you coming to us? Why are you giving us this information? They have dealt with him before as a snitch, essentially. He just kind of says, well, the poor orphan boy pricked my conscience. I've done my civic duty, which I love. Yeah. It's it, really good. Good day to you both and exits yeah. the car as quickly as he, he, he enters it. Absolutely. And I think as well, then this almost confirms to Montoya and Alan their initial thought that Jim Gordon is no better than anyone else within the homicide unit, and no better than his own partner, Harvey Bullock, that he is a corrupt cop working in cahoots with the criminal underworld Mm -hmm. to maintain this kind of balance between the two. And this then, this leads to a really interesting um, confrontation then between René Montoya and um, Barbara Keane, who we find out have no one another and it would appear intimately um, from a previous relationship. Yeah. And she goes to warn Barbara Keane, do you really know who this person is? And does he know who you are? She comes back at, at Barbara Keane, with, which is 
just a really good um, little conversation. The two of them were really good on screen uh, together. I, I love that that happened uh, and that was brought to the screen. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wonder because there's a, there's a the kind of piece of Renee running directly to Barbara to tell her that her her fiance is uh, potentially a cheater, potentially a, a bad guy. It kind of struck me while I was watching it as would this be something similar to the kind of possessive relationship that Harvey Dent had with Renee Montoya in uh, in Gotham Central that we spoke about in Half a Life, where essentially even though they've broken up, even though they only had a very very small relationship if you could even call it that, between Harvey Dent and, and René Montoya, that Harvey is constantly after René Montoya and constantly um, following her and constantly uh, believes there's something there. Could René Montoya's character take on that possessive nature with Barbara Keane uh, in the show, do you think? She she could, but I think it's more that she's still looking out for her. Kind of Maybe and protective. Yeah. I think it's more a protective thing. That I think... Montoya herself considers that she is not corrupt, and I don't think she is, mm-hmm. and that she is there to do good and to make sure that Gotham sort of gets out of this hole of, of crime that it, it's starting to move into. Mm-hmm. I think someone that she had a relationship with cares for a lot, and I think it's a protective element. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of the thing that sort of suddenly struck a chord with me was the idea of, I kind of thought, oh, maybe a detective wouldn't go to someone, even though they are almost, you know, former um, lovers, used to be in a relationship together, would they go to someone with that um, information on such a sensitive case? And I suppose... They wouldn't, but I love the fact that that was then resolved later on in the episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, when essentially Barbara Keane has the conversation with Jim Gordon. Jim Gordon knows that Montoya has had that conversation with Barbara. Mm-hmm. That kind of uh, triangle um, is coming to a head there uh, between these three um, characters. And Jim Gordon confronts Montoya on the front steps of the GCPD. And I love the fact that that resolves why Montoya did it. It was an impulsive thing. And I think because she cares about Erin Richards, and that's why I think it's protective. And um, Ren Montoya says, I shouldn't have mentioned this yeah. to, to Barbara Keane. Um, I know that. But she had to warn her. Yeah, no, I like that. And I like that there's essentially no love lost now between... Gordon and the Major Crimes Unit, he tells him to stay back and stay clear of him, um, that he's going to solve this case and he'll do it the right way. Um, it's a really great little scene. It's a real tense scene between Montoya and Gordon and to the point where then you have Alan coming in yeah. and you see his loyalty to his partner, mm-hmm. uh, Montoya, and this all starts to really kind of go, well, there's a lot of loyalty being um, thrown around here coupled to sort of the suspicion of the major crimes on other parts of the GCPD, in particular homicide unit, it could really sort of be an explosive um, thing to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting that Gordon, essentially, we know as, as the audience watching the show, Gordon and uh, Montoya and Alan are all on the same side. They're all working together for the betterment of the city, and he can't even catch a break 
with the two most likely yeah. people that he should be working with in the GCPD. Um, they already hate him. They already think, they already suspect him of being a bad guy. And he thinks they're, that they're getting in the way of his investigation. So they're not going to be working together for any time, anytime soon. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's that you have a police element and investigation element to the show. I think people probably look at the show and scrutinize it much more because they're trying to look for clues themselves mm-hmm. and anything that potentially can can go wrong or it, it seems um inconsistent or the continuity goes i think people for uh, p- shows that have police in them probably a bit more sort of tuned into that and so i really like the fact that the writing was it almost felt as though it knew that and it was, the writing was excellent. It was that they resolved things that maybe stood out immediately within that scene as being, oh, well, I'm not too sure whether that would happen or, oh, I don't know, you know, how do they know that or how do they know this? And for me, there are a few of those moments, but they all got resolved. And I thought that was a really good thing for, for the, for the show as well. Yeah. yeah. And one of those other, elements then comes out with Fish Mooney taking down Oswald Cobblepot. Absolutely. What a great scene. This is where we then come to the payback for his betrayal. But first, it's Joker Watch, episode one. So we promised we'd do Joker Watch once uh, once the show started. <laughs> uh, this is our first one. I love our theme. Um, this is our first one. So the character that's on stage telling us telling his little joke, um, essentially to uh, to median that's on stage telling his joke to Fish Mooney. Uh, loads of people suspect this is the first indication of the Joker. Uh, what do you think? I don't think it is. No. No, the reason why though. <laughs> End of Joker Watch. <laughs> the reason why though. There's a very important reason. Um, when the violence starts in the room, he turns away instantly. He's shocked by the violence of Fish Absolutely. Mooney towards Oswald Cowlpot. Um, he shies away from it. He doesn't want to look at it. Yeah. You would feel that the Joker would almost be slightly hypnotized by it, would just be looking at it with some kind of gleeful grin on his uh, on his face. And actually, he doesn't smile at all when that's happening yeah. either. So... Our suspicion is that, no, he's not the Joker. Yeah, but we will bring you Joker Watch next week if there's a Joker reference. <laughs> All the time that the comedian is on stage, Cobblepot is massaging Fish Mooney's feet, and Fish Mooney is probing and asking questions of Cobblepot in a really knowing way. And this is tees up the whole comedian... On stage, it all tees up Fish Mooney's payback for the betrayal by Oswald Cobblepot. Yeah, yeah. She essentially knows this because Gordon's confronted her in the past about it, in the previous scene, essentially, has confronted her about her knowledge of the case of the murder of the Waynes, the fact that she may have set up, um, uh, she may have set up Mario Pepper. Uh, he confronts her. She, she takes him captive, essentially, and in order to get him out of captivity, Harvey it tells her to turn on her own men that they're the ones that are that are giving this information to the police essentially um she knows that it's butch gilzine that isn't 
um, the one giving the information. Absolutely. Bit of speculative spoilers for me on this one. Yeah. Does that mean that Butch Gil, the reason why she knows Butch Gilzine is loyal is because he's the one that was sent to, to murder the Waynes? Build is quite the same. Maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. The fact that he continually introduces himself, the reason why we know his name very well is because he introduced himself three times in this episode giving his name. I wonder if he's the one that killed the Waynes. That is a very good guess. There you go. Spe- very speculative spoilers. Educated guess. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Um, Turn up every week from now on to see what Aaron Wright are on in that one. <laughs> <laughs> but she is absolutely adamant that he is loyal. Yeah. And again, this comes back to the whole aspect of the investigation. Yeah. And why does she know it's Oswald Cobblepot? And this gets explained. And it's that he's the only one who saw her putting the pearls into the bag of drugs. Yeah. But he was the only one in the room at the same time while she did that. You know, kids, if you're going to rat somebody out, make sure you're not the only person that's seen it. They'll know pretty quickly who it was. (laughs) Yeah. And so, again, this is really builds to a very tense scene where she asks, she requests of Oswald Gobblepot to demonstrate his loyalty. Mm -hmm. I suspect Cobblepot shouldn't have said, I would open a vein for you, (laughs) because (laughs) she then asks him, go on then, (laughs) open a vein, prove your loyalty. Um, And it's a really great scene between these these two uh, characters. I, I thought it was excellent, and he actually then goes to, to actually stab her in the back as she turns around oh. and this well, it appears it, oh, to right. me um, where he's been given the knife and she turns around she's about to go and pick up a chair mm. and he almost he's kind of looking at the knife and appears to go towards her and she turns That's around and smacks him with the chair and down and this then leads to one of those really realistic elements to the show which I'm really enjoying as well where she essentially hobbles Oswald Cobblepot with her metal baseball bat I love the the reality that I almost want to call it a nod to Nolan that there is a reason why he is walking like a penguin Mm -hmm. and that is because she has fractured, broken, whatever you know, his ankles his shins with a metal baseball bat. Yeah. And you hear the crack on the, on the sound and it's, you hear the agony coming from Oswald as well mm-hmm. as she does this. But that's it. He is found out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, as she adjusts her wig as she stands back. That's, uh, that's where we know that she's wearing her wig. It's a <laughs> yeah. fantastic scene. I really, really like the scene. And yet do not mess with fish moonies. My gosh. Um, yeah, scary lady. Yeah, absolutely. And essentially, she's handed over Jim and now Harvey um, to uh, Frankie the Butcher, isn't it? In the uh, in this uh, in this den, essentially, where she brings all of her victims to be killed by Butch Gilzine and tortured. I think there's a specific mention made by Butch Gilzine that you know he likes Harvey. He wouldn't want to do something bad for him uh, or to him, um, but he has to do it because that's what 
fish has asked for, um, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, that was a really fun little scene. Um, but they're saved by the entrance of Carmine Falcone and his henchmen. Brilliant scene. I, th- I thought this really, really good. We find out from this after they've pulled down Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock, Carmine Falcone um, has a chat with Jim Gordon on his own. We get to find out that Jim Gordon's father used to be district attorney, mm-hmm. the DA in Gotham, uh, and one that was respected by Carmine Falcone. That yeah. he, yes, he was he was stubborn, he stuck to his opinions, but he was also a clever um DA and one that actually the mob boss here has an element of respect for. Yeah. But we also know earlier from um the episode that Jim Gordon's father died in a car crash as well. Mm-hmm. And in that scene, opening scene where he's talking with the young Bruce Wayne, he tries to empathize with Bruce Wayne to say, you know, I lost um my parents um at an early age too. And he talks about um his father dying in a car crash. Yeah. So you just you don't know how this is gonna play, but Yeah, essentially the way that Falcone is talking to him is very much saying you know, you're a very stubborn guy, much like your father, which is, it almost comes across as a threat. Maybe I've watched too many mob films, but <laughs> but it almost comes across like a threat. Don't be stubborn like your father. Could he have caused the accident that killed Jim's father? That's quite an interesting thought, isn't it? But it's a really important speech, this, from John Doman, who's playing Carmine Falcone. And it, it's, from the trailer, it's the whole Gotham is on a knife edge, and, you know, but you get this idea that Colin Falcone loves the city just as much as anyone else. Um, but he encapsulates, I think, a huge element of, of this show, um, which is, um, in a sense, the essence of it. This idea that the organized crime in the city of himself, Fish Mooney, and other mobsters, mm-hmm. this organized crime exists with and because of law enforcement. It's this idea that he says is that he he runs a business. He doesn't want uncertainty. And this chaos, this Gotham teetering on a knife edge of chaos, um, seems to hint of something beyond mob crime. Yeah. And the type of crime that Carmine Falcone is is involved with, whether it's laundering money, drugs, um certain theft. This is big organized crime that is run like a business and anything that upsets that is just as bad for them as it is for the citizens of Gotham. And this hints at something else which will come to a bit later um, from the the conversation that Oswald Cobblepot has with Jim Gordon. I, I think that this ultimately suggests that there are other criminals that may be are very different to um, organised criminals Absolutely. like the mob and Carmine Falcone. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I do love about the episode in this particular scene as well is that it does actually wrap up the Mario Pepper storyline um, completely. It's essentially uh, John Doman's Falcone says and confirms that it was it, the replica was supplied by Fish to the cops um, to make sure that Mario Pepper was set up um, for this murder because quite simply... 
this this uh, particular killing, as big as it is, would ruin the city if there was no culprit found. Um, the city would start to turn even darker, uh, where people would lose hope if this killer wasn't found. Which I like the, the, that little wrap-up. Yeah, really and I think it keeps the ambiguity of Thomas and Martha's death. It retains that. It retains that ambiguity. Because for me, you know, it starts off with what you could consider street-level thug who shoots uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne, allows Bruce Wayne to live. And that's the same premise as Tim Burton's Batman, that it was um, a lone gunman. Now, in this case, he ultimately becomes the Joker in Tim Burton's Batman. In this, and you see his face. In this case, he's got a mask on, a balaclava, and you don't know who it is, but... But you, there is something else there because of the shiny shoes. That it's maybe a contract killer. That someone has been asked to assassinate Thomas and Martha Wayne to kill them off from a higher level, and that sort of expands um, increasingly into, you know, is it Fish Mooney and Carmine Falcone that grouping, and um, that it's them, and then you realise that they're framing. Mario Pepper, who is a street level runner and thug for, for these people, yet he has no shiny shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that whole scene between Jim Gordon and Carmine Falcone, Carmine Falcone indicates that, as you've said, we don't want this chaos that would come from that. We need it to be resolved. That's why we did the plant. It wasn't to protect ourselves because we aren't involved in this at least as far as he knows he made no order to kill thomas and martha wayne Mm -hmm. but there's an element that it is um and could be a street level thug again but there's this little bit of ambiguity because of the shiny shoes yeah so shiny shoes are incredibly important (laughs) apparently i like the potentially (laughs) maybe so if there's ever a focus on someone's feet and they've got shiny shoes on, watch out. Yeah, keep yeah. an eye on it. We I haven't think. seen Butch Gilzine's feet, have we? Not yet. Anyway, <laughs> I like the little uh, the little kiss off. I suppose you'd call it the little kiss off line from Falcone at the end. It's a, an Italian phrase which is in bocca al lupo, which I had to look up obviously because my Italian's not that good. Um, <laughs> but essentially, it just mean it, it generally means it can mean good luck. Fingers crossed, break a leg, but the literal translation of it is essentially, uh, it's in the wolf's mouth, essentially, is the way it, is. it can be a, another, another translation of it, which I really like. He's essentially said to Jim, after having this confrontation with him, he's essentially saying to him, you're now in the wolf's mouth. Um, right. So, which I really like, like the idea. Essentially, the next scene is that Cobblepot's been taken by Falcone's men and given to Jim to prove his worth, um, to essentially say that he has to kill Cobblepot to prove that he's on plan. Yeah, um, he understands the order of this city, mm-hmm. of Gotham. And it, it's a really, again, excellent scene. It's the, you know, the tense struggle of someone fighting to stay alive, yeah. thinking that they are about to get a bullet in the head. Yep. And someone then in the form of Jim Gordon, um, who this goes against everything that he knows, even though he's... Ki- and you have that reference of, you know, you've killed before Harvey tells him. Mm-hmm. You know, you were at, at, you were in the army 
Jim says, that was war. Harvey Bullock comes back and retorts, this is war. But Jim, for Jim, this is a different sort of war and it should be one where you arrest first and shoot later yeah. or only when necessary. And in this case, this is totally against, um, or appears at least to, to go against what he believes. But Jim Gordon at this moment is very much getting immersed into that real muddy, murky, um, relationship between criminals and then the police and detectives. It's really only when Harvey says to him that it's, it, by killing Cobblepot, he's saving the lives of not only Jim Gordon, and Harvey Bullock, but also of Barbara Keane. Uh, I feel that's the piece that just kind of pushed him over the edge. He's essentially being told that all three of them will be murdered. Carmine, Carmine doesn't care how many people he kills. This is for you to prove yourself. I think he's pretty close to pulling the trigger. Do you know that? I really do think that the scene has played out that Jim is very close to pulling yeah. the trigger, and it's almost a last-second decision to release Cobblepot and not kill him. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And I think then, this is, for me... The dialogue coming from Oswald Cobblepot as he's backing, being backed towards the, the river by Jim Gordon were, you know, he sees chaos coming. Uh, I, you know, I can see it. It's my talent. Um, you know, that there, there's a rivalry coming and it comes back to Carmine Falcone's discussion and conversation with Jim Gordon. It's like, for me, it asks the question, who are these rivals? Of Carmine Falcone. Mm-hmm. Is it Maroney? Is it Fish Mooney? Is it indeed Oswald Cobblepot? Are these the rivals that Oswald is talking about? These other criminal mobsters? Yeah. Or are there others? And this is where I think that, um, I get the hint from Oswald Cobblepot that in this desperation he is saying that there are others and that the rivalries are between organised crime represented by Carmine Falcone and Fish Mooney and other criminal elements that the city hasn't really seen yet, but they are off the wall. They're different. Yeah. They're not organised. That there's, there's a difference in their purpose and why they want to do that. And it's not to maintain necessarily a equilibrium or a balance between themselves as criminals and the police like the mob want to do with regards to the police or the public officers uh, and themselves yeah. that that relationship yeah yeah no essentially I've, I've simply got written down about this scene just that it's the whole scene sets up the idea that Falcone is losing his grip his rivals are on the attack and then just a question really is was it a mistake for Jim not to kill Cobblepot this is his opportunity. Um, we'll see how this plays out over the series, obviously. But it's really interesting. Like at this point, it feels like Oswald may not have, may not have been the threat that um, that Carmine thinks he is at the time, but he may grow into a much bigger threat as the season goes on. Now that he's been released from Gotham by uh, by Jim, it's yeah. an interesting piece. Um, so we move into the finale. Essentially, that the the show essentially moves into you know ending up and wrapping up the the main kind of character beats um we'll talk about uh, talk about the overall opinions of it but essentially there's a there's a whole piece with uh with Jim going to visit Bruce at uh, at Wayne Manor 
um, where he sees Bruce standing on top of Wayne Manor about to, about to jump off by the look of it from below. Um, <laughs> which I think is really interesting. And, you know, that the admonishment from, uh, from Alfred when he's, when he sees him up there again, which is essentially the, the line, um, which I think is quite interesting. And then there's the whole interplay between the two characters, between Bruce and Jim, where essentially Jim asks for Bruce's permission to continue investigating the case. Um, yeah. which is nice. I think that's a really nice, idea to, to keep Bruce involved that essentially he is um, Jim is beholden to the wishes of the young Bruce Wayne. He says to him, I failed you, I didn't find the killer, which I promised you I would. Um, will you allow me to continue to investigate this and will you stay silent about the fact that the killer of your parents hasn't been found? Um, a nice ju- juxtaposition between the fact that Carmine Falcone just asked Jim Gordon to stay quiet about it and he refused and now Jim Gordon's asking Bruce Wayne to stay quiet about about the facts of the case now, yeah. and he'll continue to investigate. I think that's quite interesting. And it, it resonates, I think, that there is a personal element to Jim Gordon and Bruce Wayne, even though um, Jim Gordon is professionally investigating as a detective um, Bruce Wayne's parents' murder. The fact that it was a young kid involved. Jim Gordon has got some kind of personal interest or just human emotive mm. element that is there, which means I want to make sure that this kid is not scarred by thinking his the killers are still out there. And that, to me, resonates with aspects of, um, say, Batman Begins, where you see Jim Gordon in Batman Begins, put the coat over the young Bruce Wayne, and that plays out again back in The Dark Knight Rises. So you have... That, to me, feels right that this kind of relationship is there between um, Jim Gordon and and the young Bruce Wayne. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's a really, really good scene. Uh, nice little bit of Alfred in there as well, as always. We do we do like our Sean Percy. Yeah. A, a nice little scene between the three of them. Um, that's essentially it for the episode, but there is one final post credit scene um, which is sort of the first time I've seen that essentially where where uh, Oswald Cobblepot emerges from the river uh, walks up slyly on the uh, behind a uh, behind a fisherman slices his throat open and then steals his sandwich which is quite yeah. interesting I thought that was quite a fun little touch that he's just uh, he just you know, maybe just wanted the sandwich or maybe he was swimming for quite a while to get out of the city I guess yeah Oswald escapes the city yeah He's, yeah. he's survived the the push into the river. He's swam across, and now he's taking Jim's uh, advice and is getting out of Gotham. It would appear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So essentially, what we'll find out is: was it the penguin that emerged from the water there from the river, or is it still Oswald? That we'll we'll, we'll see this play out, I suppose, over the rest of the season. Yeah. yeah. So, is there anything else? Maybe some final things that. Want to just bring up and mention? Um, yeah, one of the things I suppose that uh, kind of uh, came out to me is the music in the show. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I think there's some nice choices in there. Um, Jim Ravel did the, does the music, who did the music for The Crow. Yeah. 
Uh, so I know him from that. Um, it's quite quite a good musician, but he definitely stands out as almost a Danny Elfman type. He has a he has a particular style of music that he t- likes to use. Um, a couple of scenes where it, it really does feel like they used music from um, from the score of the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, just to kind of underpin a couple of lines uh, in in the show. But I think that's a really good touch. I think they've done a, a really good job of getting that stuff together. Uh, anything from yourself? Anything? I think it's just Selena Kyle's very much there right at the start. I think that's a really important beat that she's seen the murder unfold. And I'm sure that it's likely to play out over the season in some way um, and in some form. Absolutely. There is... The fact that there is another witness now to to it as a new element. Absolutely. I think that's really important. I love the idea that she doesn't speak uh, at all. And it almost is like a cat stalking its prey, um, hunting it down. Maybe hunt or that yeah. curiosity element is, is there. And I, I love this idea that it's like a cat stalking its prey and, yeah. and being curious that she has no dialogue, that it's all done silently. And I think that was excellent. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was really good. It was really good. And then. Jim Gordon. We've talked about Jim Gordon a lot in all of these mm. scenes. How do you think Ben McKenzie kind of came across? I thought he played that central element really, really quite well, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very impressed with it, with Jim, uh, Jim Gordon's character. I'm very impressed with how Ben McKenzie's playing him. He's not, the whole point of the character, I think, is probably not to be showy in this, in the role. He's not supposed to be. He's not supposed to be coming around and, and you know, singing and dancing. Uh, he is supposed to be the stoic center of the show. So in some sense, it's probably quite a, um, it's a part that doesn't stand out to a lot of people. Um, and it's but that's diff- the point of it. It's not supposed to stand out to everybody. And it's a difficult thing to do. And I think Ben McKenzie has done it really very well. And that scene between him and David Mazous at mm. the start is really so emotional I think and then Robin Lord Taylor and him on the docks Mm -hmm. and again really that conflict as to what he's going to do is so evident on um, Ben McKenzie's face and the role that he produces that is really good I thought he did really well with the role of Jim Gordon yeah definitely definitely looking forward to seeing seeing what he has Um, I think we can move on yeah, yeah. Um, so we got some feedback for the pilot episode already, uh, which is great. I know a, a number of our of our American listeners have seen the show a couple of weeks ago, so they've been nice enough to send us in their their feedback uh, on the pilot, so we can have it ready for the first episode, which is great. Um, our first piece of feedback is from Scott Fisher, um, and he says, "I only recently found your podcast, and I've gone back and listened to certain episodes, but not all. I probably never will listen to them all. Uh, however, the ones I have listened to, I have loved. Uh, some quick thoughts on the first episode." Um, this is a really nice setup episode to introduce the main characters and relationships among those characters, as well as some plot points for the season to build on. Uh, of all the different ways they've shown Bruce's parents dying in both film and comic, this one has the most emotional punch, and I felt like you could really feel the trauma that Bruce felt that leads to him becoming a Batman. Uh, even later in the episode, you could see that Bruce had, cha- had changed. Uh, the Bruce at the end of the episode was a very different one than the one that walked into the alley with his parents. Um, Fish Mooney felt a little too cartoonish, a little too thuggish, um, but I hope they can dial her character down a little bit more, make her more menacing and not just a brutal thug. Uh, I feel it would make her character better. 
Uh, Jim Gordon really, really stood out for me. Uh, you could see the beginnings of what he will become and how he was portrayed pulled you in to want to see how he navigates such a sewer of a city and corrupt police force. And he has a few questions for us, John. Um, who's your favourite character from all of the Batman cast of characters? Mine has always been Catwoman. Uh, I loved how they introduced her character and left me looking forward to seeing more of her. What do you think? Anything that particularly jumps out? See who's your favourite character? Well, this is where we get into danger territory because I will come back with three or four characters. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've got loads of feedback to get through. I've always really liked the Riddler. Mm -hmm. Um, I I like that character. I like what he brings, which is not a... It's not a physical presence. It's not a psychotic presence. It's kind of a... um, it's almost a, a intelligent person who has been sort of bullied or put down. And I think it adds a really great dimension to the cast of Batman villains. Um, it adds a different idea. It's not pure psychotic Joker. And it's not necessarily a uh, mobster-like Penguin. It's a sort of almost a slightly harmed person, traumatized person who has become this villain in response to how they've been treated previously. And I I, I liked that. I, I like the element that the Riddler or Edward Nigma uh, brings that is different to that cast of villains. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. I love Edward Nigma's character. It's so easy to say the Joker here for me, so I'm going to dial it back and say my second favourite character. <laughs> um, my second favourite character is probably Hush. Um, the character mm. who has a connection to Bruce Wayne. and I love that. I love having a character who has a personal connection to Bruce Wayne as being a bad guy. I think that's a really interesting character that they played with in uh, in Batman Hush. Um, if you know, if you know the graphic novels, uh, probably my favorite one of all time. I love, I always love when there's some real stakes um, with a good guy bad guy relationship. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite characters personally. And then the second question that Scott asks us is: We know that Jin's daughter or adoptive daughter, depending on the different type of continuity that you're using from the the comics becomes the first Batgirl. Uh, at what point do you think we will see her introduced? Um, for for Scott, then, he has this feeling that it's um, maybe a few seasons away, maybe two or three seasons away, uh, but that she will be an important character that will be um, introduced for both Jim's story in Gotham and also Bruce's story. Um, and he's curious as to what our thoughts uh, are on this. Yeah, I've, I've, I feel this one. Um, I kind of feel if it's going to be his actual daughter, Barbara and, and Jim are way too young to have, uh, a child that's, you know, in their, in their teens or, uh, or twenties, depending on, uh, again, depending on when, uh, she's supposed to become Batgirl. So if she's going to be introduced, it's going to be a crying baby essentially in the first couple of seasons, um, of the show. Uh, there is a possibility, and Aaron Richards had a, a nice little joke about this during the week. Uh, as a possibility that Erin Richards, Barbara Keane, will take up the mantle of Batgirl. Uh, I like that she talked about it as a kid. She used to dress up as Batman when she was when she was ten. So I think that's quite interesting. I'm not too sure whether they're going to introduce Batgirl. I think we spoke about it in, in one of the in one of our past uh, zero year episodes. Um, but I, I have a feeling they can't really introduce Batgirl as such uh, in that form. And yeah. uh, there may be a character that'll that'll be. 
on the good side and will be a vigilante. But the chances of introducing Batgirl, if they're not going to introduce Batman until the last episode of the show, uh, I would feel it'd be a little bit off to do that. Yeah, um, I think we we had talked about that before. Where yeah. To have Batgirl there before Batman would seem strange for, for the show and for the canon, I think, of of Batman yeah. itself. Yeah. There's the possibility that if, as Scott says, depending on which continuity you use, mm-hmm. you could get an adopted daughter who would be older and you could introduce someone around Bruce's age where maybe they are friends together uh, and interact and have that developing relationship mm-hmm. uh, between them as, as friends and as kids. So that's always a possibility rather than just a baby being born because then, yeah, you, there would need to be a jump in time yeah. uh, for her to, to, to really have an important uh, influence on Jim uh, and on, on Bruce as well. But certainly um, an adoptive daughter could speed that along yeah. uh, much more so. It's a possibility. Uh, and yeah. as I say, if it's an adoptive daughter that happens to work on the other side uh, you know the shadier side of the law than Jim does, uh, as in a vigilante, and um, that could be quite an interesting piece. I definitely don't think it's for a couple of seasons. I do uh, do agree with Scott that it will be a number of seasons before they get to that kind of so- side. There's quite a few characters to explore before then. Um, so Scott says, "Keep up the good work. Looking forward to future episodes of your podcast." Thank you, Scott, for, for, for your you. feedback. Yeah, yeah we're, thanks, Scott. Um, keep your feedback coming in. It's really good to hear from you. So, a friend, Bill Meeks. Yeah, from, uh, from Legends of Gotham. Yeah, one of our other podcasts. Uh, he sent in an audio uh, clip, which we'll play for you. Hi, guys. This is Bill from Legends of Gotham. Uh, first, I wanted to thank you for coming to our roundtable podcast, along with Before the Bad, a couple weeks back. That was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I told you guys I'd go ahead and send you in like a quick like, 10, 15, 20-second uh, reaction to the pilot. Uh, first of all, hated it. No, I'm just kidding. I absolutely loved it. I did think that the first 15 minutes felt almost like a piece from another work, but once it really got cooking, it really got cooking. It was really, really good. I I, I thought it felt like a, a modern, kind of like a live-action prequel to Batman the Animated Series. It, it felt like it was in that kind of world, which was really cool and very appropriate with all the characters that have crossed over and everything like that. that. I loved all of the performances. As everyone said, the standouts really are Penguin and uh, Harvey Bullock. We used usually do an arbitrary scale rating at the end of our episodes so out of 22 pairs of shiny shoes i give this one 20 because there's always room for improvement thanks guys hope you enjoy the episode when you get to see it thanks bill yeah i mean certainly we also loved all the performances um, and certainly robin lord taylor as oswald gobblepot and donald logue as harvey bullock are certainly huge um standouts there uh, for the show again i think we said ben mckenzie mm-hmm. you look at the quality of his acting as being that stoic counterpoint to maybe some more of the madness that Absolutely. you get from the heightened villains um is really good you have sort of the younger cast really being Incredible. I mean, David Mazous in particular delivers quite an emotional punch right at the start. Mm-hmm. You have Ivy Pepper, really subdued levels of help get me out of here, but mm-hmm. it just leaps off her face when um, Jim Gordon comes to 
Mario Pepper's house during that investigation. Really good acting. And then you have kind of the silent acting and, and physicality there of Cameron Bickendover as the young Selena Kyle too. So there's a whole load of performances there. And I think this show actually is underpinned by some incredible cast members. Yeah. Because with Victoria Cartagena and with um, Andrew Stewart-Jones, mm-hmm. along with Erin Richards as well, they... These cast members are really strong performers and are delivering really great performances yeah. as well all the way through. And I can't wait to see see more of, of that because so far it's been solid. Yeah, absolutely. Let's not forget John Dolan's performance as Cameron Falcone. He swoops in and absolutely. has an amazing scene right there. That's really good. Adds a lot of a lot of uh, gravitas to the to the episode. Yeah, definitely. and a, a bit like as Scott Fisher was talking about Fish Mooney's character and you know to make her more menacing, John Dolan just menaced That's his way onto the screen in such a great way that um, I thought that was a great and also a really for my part. A crucial scene within uh, the entire episode. Absolutely. I was going to say movie. Then I mean episode. <laughs> it did feel like a movie. Um, yeah. Then. Uh, so thanks very much, Bill. That's really good for your feedback. I love your rating. Twenty twenty shiny shoes yeah. out of twenty two. That's very funny. Well, we had the batarangs and the sheriff stars <laughs> yes. and and so on. So maybe yeah, maybe the the shiny shoes we can we can give our. Out of five shiny shoes. <laughs> Out of five shiny shoes. So shiny one... shoes. I'm going to get that wrong at some point. Shiny Def- shoes. Definitely stop saying it or else you will get it wrong. Um, Out of five shiny shoes. So there's one There's one pair that aren't matching. Is that the, that the point? Yeah. Okay. Uh, great. Someone with one, only one leg. <laughs> I'm not going to give a rating. This is, <laughs> this is the first episode. There definitely is room for improvement. It is a good pilot overall. It did sell the show quite well, but yeah. it's... Um, but I'm not going to give it a rest. And again, again I, I think that's partly that aspect as to why maybe parts of it felt that it was like a different piece. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, for Bill over in the States, you probably watched episodes two, three, um, at this stage. So it could even just feel that the whole episode is slightly different in feel to some of those others as well. I can understand that, and I think that's in part down to it being a pilot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, On to our next bit of feedback. Yeah, so our next bit of feedback comes from Kev Friel, and he provides his verdict, um, which is really good. Mm -hmm. This is a verdict, which is very apt for a series that is going to centre around the Gotham City Police Department. Absolutely. Um, and he goes that for, for him, there was a lot of guessing who was who, or more like who grows up to be who. Um, we got the Wayne family murders in there pretty quick. Um, I haven't warmed to Gordon yet. Uh, Bullock is a shady two-faced character. Fish Mooney was fine, but in my opinion was upstaged by um, Penguin. Uh, Oswald Cobblepot. Um, I really like that scrawny, sniveling, sick little guy, <laughs> which is a great way of describing him. Um, that is a really great way of describing him. In all, I'm looking forward to more. It seems not to be a typical superhero villain stuff that kind of turns me off a series. This, however, I hope keeps character development and story at the fore ahead of give that dude a cape and give that guy a top hat and an umbrella quick. And so that's, thank you very much for that feedback, Kevin. I suspect then that 
not your typical kind of show that you would be watching. And mm. um, certainly one that would be related to superheroes or supervillains. And that actually this, whilst they are there, that's why you probably who's who and that for part of this is really to say that you know whilst a lot of us know the canon and the characters and the history of batman and gotham and all those different characters there's a lot of people coming to this show who may not have that yeah. background yeah no it's great it's really great that the show's actually bringing on some people that haven't uh that don't know the the full extent to the Batman universe. Nobody knows the full extent. They'll give you that as a, as a prize, except for Jeff Johns, I think. Um, there's 75 years of history there. There's no one that knows all of it straight off the top of their head. So, uh, it's great that the show's actually bringing on some people that, that, you know, are interested in seeing, uh, and seeing these, the, the characters and interested to see the show. I totally agree with this point though. Um, I hope that it keeps character development story at the forefront of the show. That's absolutely what I want to see. I would much prefer a really well, uh, developed character story than, just seeing somebody dress up as my favorite film from a comic. Um, so I'm hopeful. I think this is a really good episode to show um, what they, how they can go about it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm hopeful that that's, the, that's what they'll do. So I agree with Kev. Absolutely. And I think from the scrawny, snivelling, sick little guy that is Oswald Cobblepot, mm-hmm. we now know he's left Gotham. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting now to see how that plays out in the next couple of episodes. How long is he away from the city? How long will it take him to return? This will be really important to see how he develops and and maybe it twists him further uh, than what he already is. So Mm -hmm. this will be interesting to see. um, And that is the kind of character development that we probably want to see too. Absolutely. And our final piece of feedback comes from Matt uh, from the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. Um, so cross borders uh, to the to the <laughs> DC side. Um, thank you, Matt. Um, I've really been enjoying the, the podcast. I uh, can't wait to hear your take on the first episode. So you've just heard it, Matt. Send us your feedback afterwards. Um, my review of the show is a little mixed. Uh, I loved Gordon's storyline. The last scene was so badass with him threatening Oswald. It was a better Batman moment than most I've seen on screen. I was a little disappointed in how they handled young Bruce. If they're going to make um, the inciting moment of the show his parents' death, I wish they'd done a little bit more to make us care about him or his parents beforehand. I understand they couldn't spend too much screen time with his parents, but I just felt like the only reason to care was because it was a classic Batman moment. I don't want to see them leaning too hard in that type of crutch over the course of the show. Uh, rest of the show is pretty spot on, though. I really think the show, show is going somewhere cool. Um, I think that's a good point, actually. I never, I, it didn't really cross my mind at the time when I was watching it. Uh, unlike Matt, it didn't take away from my enjoyment of the show. But I do think it's a really good point that you don't see anything at all with Bruce and his parents. You actually have, you know, you have the opportunity to explore that relationship for the first time. Um, in, in the, in this TV show, because it's the longer form than we've ever seen the show, seen the history of, uh, of Bruce Wayne in the past. So it is a, it is a good question. Why wasn't there, you know, even a scene at dinner with the three of them talking? So you actually get to know his parents and know how much they care about each other. Yeah, I think I agree with Matt as well on this. I think it would be nice to get some bigger meaning as to the impact of Thomas and Martha's death on the young Bruce Wayne. Having said that, I actually thought the shock element and the trauma element that of someone being killed in front of you, in particular your parents, I thought David Mazous did that oh, 
Absolutely brilliant. No question. But maybe this is something that, rather than having one or two or three episodes where Thomas and Martha are are alive and you get snippets of them, maybe this is something that you could do a backstory episode on. Or you could do various flashback um, elements over the course of the season that build a picture um, in the mind of the audience of Bruce's relationship with his parents and maybe it would work um, well like that. Yeah, totally agree. Um, it is absolutely a possibility. I'm hopeful. I'm not a huge fan of flashbacks and, and very uh, and overused flashbacks. I'd be hopeful that they do maybe, you know, a good long, um, a good long scene or a good long couple of uh, moments where Bruce is remembering what happened in the past or maybe there's a, a long, I suppose a much longer full episode about it rather than it being just a flashback and a, and a dream sequence or whatever it may be. I'm kind of hopeful that they'd go a bit deeper with it because they have the time to do it, essentially. Uh, I think that could be quite interesting. But again, Matt, thanks very much for your, for your feedback. Yeah, thanks, Matt. One more piece. We did get an iTunes review from uh, the Fish seventy six of so Fish Mooney's on our tail, I think, um, which is really nice of you. Thank you very much for your for your iTunes review. It's really nice to to get them, and it does help people find our our show. Now that we've been able to review the pilot, hopefully we'll get a few more people checking out for the show uh, for the podcast on on iTunes. So. The more feedback you can give us on there, the better. It'd be great. Um, if you want to contact us with your feedback about the pilot or about the second episode, we should be recording that um, that podcast uh, just after the episode is aired in the UK on Monday the 20th of October. Send your feedback into feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. Absolutely. You can also leave any comments, any feedback on um, Gotham TV podcast handle on Facebook, on Twitter, on Google+. Any of those different social media. If you want to do a builded, you can record your thoughts, attach them to an email and send them into feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com and we'll play any thoughts that we get. We'll play them in the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks very much for joining us. Next time is episode two, Selena Kyle. We might actually get at some discussion from Cameron Beacon Dover. Yeah, I mean, really looking forward to, to seeing the next episode now. I think... Um, just to see how it builds and, and how the show develops from uh, from this really strong opener. And so thank you so much for, for listening, and we will be back with episode two um, just after the 20th of October. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, looking forward to it. And we will leave you with these fine words from John Dillon's Carmine Falcon. Thanks. Thanks. In boca a lupa. And just one of the other points I wanted to make about it, they've, they've reported a, a number of downloads that have happened for the show. So the number of people that have downloaded illegally the show. It's about a million people, a million downloads that have happened um, in 12 days, I think, was the was the stat they were given. So in 12 days, one-twelfth of the people that watched, it on the, uh, watched the show over the course of four days, over 12 days... We'll edit that out because that's completely... There you go. Start again. <laughs> Maths was never his strong point. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yes, maths is absolutely my strong point. Um, so it's been estimated that there was about a, about a million downloads of the pilot over the course of a twelve-day period. So you know, four times the amount of time. Um, <laughs> God, I can't get my maths right at all. Uh.
so apparently they've talked about the number of people that have downloaded the show, and they've said that a million people downloaded it over the course of the first week or so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop this for a second. Yeah. Gotham TV podcast. Do not cross Alan and Montoya.